Welcome to Living Box Free. Our mission is to help you break out of the box of worldly expectations. We're here to help you find your unique journey to a healthy, fulfilled life. Welcome to Living Box Free. We are in part two of our Emotional Intelligence podcast, which is a part of our bigger series called Who Dis? Mm -hmm. Learning all about self-knowledge, who we are, and in this episode, how do we manage ourselves in those relationships? Before we jump into our part two of EQ, yeah, we're going to ask ourselves our question, what is on the rise for you this week, Ash? Oh, man. Okay, so this week... I actually got a text from you, but it it was kind of just coincidental that it was from you. It could have come from anyone about re-entering normal world post-quarantine. And so it basically was talking about, okay, if, you know, the stay-at-home order is lifted and we go back to normal life, and it just was instant anxiety for me, like instant. And I think it took me a long time to work through, figure out, okay, what's going on? Calm down, breathe. And I realized it's because I've finally gotten used to staying at home Mm -hmm. and I have a system worked out. I have habits, I have a schedule and there it's really very low stress or at least low decision making. And so I don't have to make a lot of decisions. The biggest decision I have to make in a week is where we're getting tacos for taco Tuesday. <laughs> like that's literally the biggest thing that has to happen. Important. Yes. Supporting local businesses <laughs> and is. eating tacos. Oh yeah. Tuesday night tacos. <laughs> So, yeah, I realized I need to start processing as we go back into normal life. And it's not going to, you know, just hop back into everything's normal, everything's fine, whatever. But as we're going back into it, what things do I want to take with me from this time? What things do I need to leave behind? I need to make a plan. So that's that's what's on the rise for me this week. Anxiety and planning. (laughs) (laughs) Both. It's probably good to hear that for some people, though, because... Others might feel similarly when they get that text or that email from their workplace that says, hey, we're all coming back next week. Right. It's going to happen eventually. Yeah. How about you? What's on the rise for you this week? My answer is much simpler. Great. What's on the rise for me this week? Ash knows this and most of my friends at the gym know this. I do not wear shorts Mm -hmm. usually ever. True. And this weather has been so beautiful. I have been wearing shorts a lot at home, walking around the neighborhood in shorts, proud of my white legs. Excellent. Who cares? It's a pandemic. Show those off. So I have, I've been pulling out some of my old shorts, just enjoying, enjoying yeah. the nice, beautiful weather. Okay. Letting my skin feel the wind. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> maybe, maybe my legs will get some sun. They won't be quite as white. However, if you walk with me at night, you probably will be seen. So that's good. (laughs) Got that glow going? Yes, the glow. (laughs) Well, speaking of glowing, you're going to be glowing after this episode. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We are jumping into emotional intelligence part two. There are four parts of emotional intelligence. The episode previous to this, we talked about the first two, self-awareness and self-management. Yep. Those are really around that personal competence of emotional intelligence. This episode, we're going deeper. We're going to be talking about the relational competence of emotional intelligence, which makes up two areas here. One is social awareness, and the other one is relationship management. These are the final two pieces of emotional intelligence we'll talk about. Once again, EQ, the goal is how do we create deep, meaningful relationships? And we talked about this in the previous episode. Emotional intelligence is one of the biggest predictors of success as well. Yeah. And one of those pieces that I know I struggle with at times is social awareness. Yes. Ash and I were talking right before this. I am 
I took the test from Emotional Intelligence 2.0, and it actually talks about how I see the world through rose-tinted glasses, which I have multiple personality tests that tell me that too. <laughs> social Positivity, Miss yes, Positive. Social awareness, there are times, and I can think of so many times, even from the gym, we'll come home and my husband will say, oh my gosh, did you see so-and-so? They looked like they were so sad. And I'd be like, what? I was over rolling by the speakers talking to so- <laughs> these other people. I didn't I didn't notice that. Sorry, I was having a dance party in the corner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For me, this is an area I know I need to focus on. Yeah. So I, I love talking about it. And Ash is going to tell us more about the importance of social awareness and how do we refine that competency. So social awareness is defined as ability to read social situations and the feelings and emotions of others. The Dalai Lama, you know, some guy in the East. Sounds familiar. Said only the development of compassion and understanding for others can bring us the tranquility and happiness we all seek. It's a huge skill in the world. I mean, If, if I don't know how you feel, then how can I care for you? How can I lead you? How can I, or, you know, if we want to go completely utilitarian, how can I get what I need from you? Yeah. In the last episode, I quoted Carl Jung, the uh, psychologist, and he said, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. And in this episode, we can talk about how the opposite is true. If you want to understand yourself, you can look to some extent, at how other people react to you. Mm. So the ways that you are coming across are important. What people see... Now, you have to keep in mind... Okay, well, all right, hold on. So let's talk (laughs) about something else first. Let's talk about anchoring. Yes. So anchoring is a cognitive bias, which is basically kind of um, a default setting in our brain. And you can be aware of it, but it's still there. So it's a cognitive bias that causes us to use our own experiences as a guide for inferring the experiences of another person. The easiest way to explain this is to say, okay, we're sitting in a room right now that is purple. The walls are painted Mm -hmm. purple. I see that as a certain tint, a certain shade. You might see it differently, but I don't know that. So we had to come to some understanding that what I see as this shade and what you see as this shade is we're just going to call it purple. But I don't know how you see it. So I can only infer through my experience and how I see purple as how you see purple. Yeah, I see it as wildcat K-State purple. All my Kansas State University peeps out there. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ash is like, okay, that is not what I see here. <laughs> I don't have a lot of, like, college pride. I mean, I do, but I, I don't have that kind of, you know, the patriotism thing going on. So I'll let you... All my, celebrate your- all my tattoos, all my KSU tattoos. <laughs> your wildcat tattoos. Oh, gosh. <laughs> anyway, okay. So anchoring is basically when we take something that someone else does or says or any experience and we put it through our own filter of our experiences. Mm-hmm. And what this means is that other people are not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. So our de- brain's default state, when we're not thinking about something that's actively happening, our, our default state is to think about ourselves. I think it's 78% of the time that we spend thinking about ourselves. In any situation, you can look around and be like, that person's not thinking about me. They're thinking about them. And so anytime, this is a a good practice to get into. Anytime I feel self-conscious, it's usually because someone, I think someone else is thinking about me. So just to stop and say, wait, that person is probably not thinking about me. They're probably thinking about themselves. Ask yourself, what if this person has a completely different experience or thought than I do? And you can understand once you start to think about that, that people have wildly different experiences. For instance, you and I have very different opinions on (laughs) 
cardio. You don't give yourself enough credit. <laughs> I'm I'm growing. I'm growing. Yeah. But I genuinely think that we experience it differently. And yep. so often, I, one of the things that I, I think I actually asked you once, does it bother you how many people call you crazy? Because people often say, I'm used to Becky's it. crazy. <laughs> or they'll just straight up say to you, you're nuts. Like yes. you're out of your mind because you enjoy cardio and you go after it. And I genuinely think you experience it differently yeah. than other people. And so for me, what feels terrible doesn't feel as terrible to you or you enjoy how it feels terrible. I like love the pain. Yeah. See, it's a different <laughs> experience. And until yeah. we understand that and we understand that not everyone is sitting in the exact same spot, the exact same perspective that we are, we really can't connect with other people or care for them or lead them or mm-hmm. grow with them. Yeah, it's just, it's a vital skill. So that's where to start. Let's talk about sympathy versus empathy versus compassion. So these are three different words, and we tend to use them interchangeably. Sympathy really means understanding that someone is feeling a certain way. So I can be watching a movie and someone on the show is crying, and I can say, I understand that that, you know, they're sad, Mm -hmm. they're crying, and maybe I even have that anchoring ability to say, I have been sad before, so I know what sad feels like. That's sympathy. So it's more of identifying an emotion. Identifying Mm -hmm. that something is happening, that someone is feeling something. Exactly. Empathy is when you actually feel with someone what they are already feeling. Now, it might not be to the extent that they are feeling it. You know, if someone, if you're sitting with someone and they have just lost a parent or something and they're grieving, you can grieve with them. You can feel sad with them. You're probably not going to feel it to the same extent, but that is empathy, that feeling of shared emotional experience. And that is very different from sympathy because sympathy can be, I can say, okay, you're crying. I see Mm -hmm. it. You should stop. How helpful is that? It's painful. Yeah. (laughs) Which I've heard people do that quite often. Oh, yeah. They recognize emotions. However, their past anchoring experience says, you shouldn't be crying because of this. Mm -hmm. Suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) And in that moment, you probably need to let that emotion out. Yeah. And probably need someone to recognize it's okay. So it's much more helpful. Now it takes more energy and Mm -hmm. uh, effort, but it's much more helpful when someone sits in it with you. And that can be a positive thing or a negative thing. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever had, I think we do this most often. I was thinking about this last night. We do this most often with body image. So quarantine's been a little rough on some of us. (laughs) (laughs) for body image and for, you know, because we're staying at home, we're eating our emotions, we're doing all these things. And I actually, um, two weeks ago, a week ago, my roommate decided to get on the scale and she was all discouraged. And, you know, um, our friend Lauren and I talked, tried to talk her through it. Like, this is temporary. This Mm -hmm. is a season. It's it's okay. So we sat with her in it and we said, I've been there. I've been there when you get on the scale and it's disappointing, it's discouraging. Yep. And so we had, we could say, we're feeling this with you. And then yesterday or two days ago, I got on the scale and I was shocked to discover that I weigh the same thing that I weighed before quarantine, which is everyone else out there is like, I hate her. Exactly. Okay. That's my point. (laughs) That's my point. Yeah. We don't want to, we don't want to embrace the positive feelings of other people when we are not experiencing those things as well. So we don't want to go either direction. We don't like sitting in sad or negative emotions with people mm-hmm. because we don't we're not comfortable there and we also don't want to go the other side and say you're experiencing a positive thing 
and I am not, but I don't want to come with you. Mm-hmm. So we immediately do that thing where we anchor and we turn it to our ourselves and we say, okay, but I feel self-conscious. I feel like I've gained weight. I feel like I, da, 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 da. I feel, I feel, I feel. And so I don't want to sit in this with you. I don't want to say this is exciting. That, I mean, social awareness. So you're describing how do you identify an emotion? Mm-hmm. How do you sit in emotion with someone else? And then there's this whole, I mean, this component that you're describing, I feel like a lot of people struggle with, do I have to be sad if my friend is sad? Yeah. Or do I have to be happy and I'm not because my friend is happy or my mm-hmm. spouse? Yeah. So it's what's the answer? Oh, <laughs> there isn't one. It's, That's so it's, helpful, right? There isn't an answer. There's yeah. no one answer. Okay. So let's talk about, before I answer that. Yes. Let's talk about compassion. Please. So compassion is where you feel what the other person is feeling with the desire to help mm-hmm. and the desire to either to make it better or to and to uh, participate in that emotion with that person. So it could be celebrating how yeah. positive they feel or, you know, trying to help them through this negative thing. Now, this is where it gets tricky. And the answer to your question is there is no answer. It depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> Because helping is not always doing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always mean doing something about it. And actually, one of the things uh, I love about the Jewish faith is they have this thing called the Shiva. So after they have a couple of different traditions after, you know, uh, the death of a family member. And one of them is that you do what's called sitting Shiva. So you spend seven days in which you you sit still. You don't do things for yourself. People bring things to you and they sit with you and you discuss memories of your loved one that you lost. And they're literally just coming and sitting with you. Yeah. And that's how you experience your grief. And it, it doesn't have to be doing something. And so I think, yeah, the answer to the question, it just depends on what the person needs. Yeah. And often what you have to do is just ask. What do you need? Do you need me to just sit here with you and cry with you? Do you need me to go out and buy you a box of chocolate? Do you need, what do you need? Yes. Most often. Yes. (laughs) That always, always put that on the list and then do other things. No. (laughs) Uh, And often people will say, I don't know. I don't know what I need. And that's fine. That's okay. They know that you're there and they know that you're willing to help and to do what they need if you can. Yes. I've heard Ash ask that question. And and I wish there was a clear cut answer, right? What do you do in these situations? It depends. Asking, what do you need? That's so powerful. And I don't feel like many people ask that question. And sometimes when you hear it from someone, it catches you off guard. Like, well, what do I need? I don't know. Yes. It's hard to figure out sometimes, but it's helpful when other people ask me that I can, I can stop and say, well, if I, even if I don't know what I need, if I figure it out, Mm-hmm. I know that someone will help me. So, yeah, having that awareness, that awareness of how other people are feeling, entering into those emotions with them when that's what they need, mm-hmm. asking that question, what do you need? And then, so another part of social awareness is being aware of what's going on in the room. This is a tricky one. It is. I feel like this is when we talk about how personality is set. I think some people naturally have the ability to know what's going on in the room yep. and just to read it. And then there, there is, it's still a skill you can develop, but I think some of us are born with an easier time of doing that. So I don't know. Have you ever watched this show, Psych? I have not, but I've seen it. It's popped up in like suggestions. Oh, yes. But I've not watched it. It's really fun. I really enjoy it. But it's about this guy who pretends to be a, a psychic in order mm-hmm. to consult for the police department. And his father was a detective 
and he dr- he wanted his son to be a detective when he grew up, and so he would hmm. drill him as a child. So the kid's name is Sean. And as a child, his dad would ask, you know, he would say, before you can have this piece of pie, they'd be sitting in a diner, before you can have this piece of pie, close your eyes and tell me how many hats are in the room. Whoa. And so the kid would have to close his eyes and think about, okay, there's a baseball cap in the corner, there's a woman with a, you know, a beret on and over here, and he would have to recite what was going on. Wow. So this is something I actually... Talk about visual learning. Yes, exactly. I actually try to do some of these exercises sometimes just for fun. That's cool. I will stop and say, okay... If I had to just recall it right now, what is the body language of each person? What do I think each person is feeling right now? How are they doing? Mm -hmm. And try to assess. And then sometimes I'll go around and say, so how's everybody doing right now? And just see if I'm right just for for fun. Yes. But that's one of my own little personal exercises. That's good. Oh, so body language. So a UCLA study showed that gestures count for a whopping 55% of the impact you make on the person you're talking to. 55%. That's... It's a lot. That's I'm a glad because I like to move. <laughs> I like to use my hands. Yes, you are. You are a hand talker. Maybe it's too that much. That is though. true. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, so your tone of voice makes up thirty-eight percent, and your words are only seven percent. So nonverbal communication is ninety-three percent of your impact on your That's conversation. Incredible. That's a lot. I feel like we forget that quite often. E- even when you think about empathizing with someone or. What you talked about, compassion, empathy, sympathy, Mm -hmm. the tone that you use and the gestures in your face, someone can perceive that very differently. Yeah. So I had a, I've talked a little bit about this, but I took a class recently. It was a um, graduate, a seminary level class and it was over Zoom and the professor had this one way that he wanted us to learn something. It was, he needed us, he wanted us to learn this mnemonic device. It's called the PEG system, super complex. And he had this one way we had to learn it that way or we wouldn't get credit. And we kept bringing it up in the class and saying, we're confused. We're uncertain. Like people were using feeling words and saying, I'm frustrated. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. I'm confused. I feel like you're not listening. All of these things, they were actually communicating what they were feeling. And he was getting annoyed and getting shorter and shorter and shorter and just moving on and not flexing or adapting. No, no. Yeah. And so I ended up calling him and having a very lengthy and complicated conversation with him. But at some point he basically said, I am the professor don't you agree I have the right to enforce the syllabus however I see fit? And I I had to stop and think for a second. And I said, okay, on face value, yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. you do. You absolutely do. And we either pass or we fail. And that is not like, yes, you have the right to enforce that. However, how you say what you say matters. So how you say this is what we're doing makes a huge impact on whether or not we're willing and we're emotionally on board with doing things your way. And it was mm-hmm. like, okay, this guy's in his 60s. It was like no one had ever told him that how he said what he said mattered. Mind blown. I know. It was like, whoa. He thought I was the smartest person he'd it, ever met in that moment. <laughs> you probably are. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. But isn't that so sad that people don't give us feedback that could improve for this gentleman, his trade. He's a professor. Mm -hmm. And whether it's, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. You could say he should be seeking feedback. Even his his colleagues, hopefully you're giving feedback. You're not accepting the status quo and you're saying, hey, well, here's a watch out. None of your students are enjoying your class or they're struggling with the tangible takeaways. Here's how we can adjust what, how you say it matters. That hopefully... Those on this podcast, if you hadn't heard that, mind blown, what 
take that, chew on it, because mm-hmm. it really makes a huge difference. It does. We talked before about bringing people along with you on your journey, and that's one of the ways you can do it, is you can communicate to people through your actions and through your body language and your tone, how you're feeling and how what you mean behind your words, and it helps bring, bring people along to the meaning of your conversation. So yes. that's a key takeaway. And then... Something that I think about sometimes is how much of my time in conversation is spent talking versus listening. Mm. And this is one of those things that, again, it depends. (laughs) It depends on what's going on. So if you have had a really bad day, I'm obviously going to spend more time listening to you and vice Mm -hmm. versa. But in general, you want to think about, am I taking up on a one-on-one conversation? Am I taking up more than 50% of this conversation generally as a rule you don't want to do that because then you're not getting to understand the other person and what they're thinking and what they're feeling now sometimes there are just people that just don't talk as much my dad is a you know the strong silent type and so (laughs) yeah so in conversation with him I'm probably just naturally going to talk more than he is but then I want to make sure that when he's ready to talk and he has something to say I'm ready to listen and aware of that yes and that I'm paying enough attention to his body language and to his tone of voice that I can recognize, oh, he has something he wants to say. I'm going to stop and I'm going to listen. Mm-hmm. So those are some key thoughts on social awareness. Dun, it's a dun, skill. Dun. It's a skill you got to <laughs> practice. It is. It's such a it's such an important skill too. being able to read the room. I think of situations at work mm-hmm. and I'm probably way more aware at work than I am in the gym or with friends sometimes. Yeah, because I am in the fun mode. At work, I'm in the truly assess the room, who's on board, who's not, what compelling case do I need to present for this project? Yeah. You can't always be 100% in tune, right? It's impossible. It'd probably take a lot of cognitive awareness. And let's, like Ash said, some people are just born very able to read those emotions. Mm -hmm. For me, I have to really focus. I have to really focus to read those emotions and it takes more energy. Mm-hmm. I love that Ash said, ask people, what do you need right now? Everyone needs something different. That's why it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. Especially as a leader, if you're in charge of that person asking yes. what they need. And sometimes you can't give them what they need, mm-hmm. but it's helpful to ask and to help them feel heard. And yes. And know that doors open, which is a great segue into yeah. relationship management. Yep. Ash has led some teams. When you are focusing on emotional intelligence. This is really the capstone, the final piece when it comes to the point of EQ is how do we build strong relationships? How do we manage those relationships? The definition of relationship management is understanding your reactions and the behaviors of others to build strong relationships. That is the goal at the end of the day. And when it comes to deep relationships, something to keep in mind is they take time. Yes, it is not. Yes, it is not something that's going to happen after one or two interactions. It's it's focused on time, quality, depth. So everything we talk through here, the more time you spend in intentional relationships, the deeper and more meaningful they will become. Relationship management, as we think through how do we manage those relationships, first thing to keep in mind is all three of those areas of emotional intelligence we've talked about, you got to flex them here. Oh, yeah. Knowing yourself, yep. controlling yourself, mm-hmm. and knowing others' emotions. For sure. So this builds on all three of those. You're going to flex them all. You're going to practice them. In the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, it outlines, I think there's like 14 different techniques. I could read through them all, 
but I'll just let you go get the book if you'd like to read all 14 techniques or tactics for relationship management. Yeah. Looking through all of them, I'm going to summarize those into three key areas. One is conflict. How do we approach and handle conflict in relationships? The second is communication. Ash has touched on the importance of communication isn't just the words we use, it's how we say it. And then the final one is trust. We're going to jump into the first one here, conflict. Ooh, some of you are cringing just hearing that word, <laughs> conflict. This is, this is one of the areas where I've had my mind blown. Conflict is healthy. Yeah. Without conflict and avoiding it, that is worse than addressing conflict. I was actually, I was listening to a different podcast one day, and I believe it was the Andy Stanley one. He mentioned, don't ever have someone seeking you out. You be the first one, if there's an issue, to go to them and address it. Yeah. Don't hide. And that has always stuck with me. I don't like waiting until the next day or week. The longer that you wait to handle conflict, the worse that it's, it's going to get worse. Yeah. So let's talk about some steps. So how do we manage conflict in relationships? The first one, don't avoid it. Be the first one to address that conflict real time. Not months later, not down the road. It's just going to get worse. And the longer that you wait, the more, the less facts you're going to remember. Now we did talk about, you talked about in the last episode that cool down period. So that's not what you're saying, right? Yes. So perfect. I'm glad you brought that up. You need to make sure you're in your rational, safe environment when it comes to conflict. So whether that's giving yourself a day, giving yourself a couple hours, give yourself that cool off time so that you're not in that fight or flight. It's going to say something you regret. However, know that the longer you wait, the more difficult it might be to have that healthy dialogue. The, the point here is not to avoid. The, the other piece here in handling conflict in relationship management is seek first to understand, then to be understood. Ooh. That's difficult. Yes, it is. You oftentimes, especially if you haven't given yourself the cool off period, mm-hmm. you go in hot, ready to make your case. That is not the best way for relationship management. It is asking those questions seeking to understand where the other person's coming from, truly listening. We've talked about that too. Yeah. Listening to hear and then helping explain, here's what I observed and here's what that made me feel and why I reacted the way I did or why we're having this conversation. And if we can truly seek to understand first, it's going to help that person feel safe. And usually safety is a big issue with with conflict. People, if they don't feel safe, they're not going to open up and tell you what they're really feeling or thinking. Something that I've had to think about is in dealing with this, because yeah, I do try to try to set aside that need to be understood. And sometimes I have to go back to that self-knowledge piece of why do I feel like I have to be understood? Like, why is it vital Mm -hmm. for me, especially if it's a conversation about like, I don't know, groceries, you know, those kinds of absurd conflicts that you get into that you're like, this is ridiculous. Why do I feel like I have to be understood? And sometimes you can walk that back to a childhood experience or even just that negative self-talk and figure out, you know what, I actually don't need to be understood. We just need to figure out how to move forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's it's hard going back to, we've talked about, so often we think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about others. When it comes to someone who's really thriving in relationship management, they're putting themselves on the back burner in the sense of they're letting the other person speak first. Yes. And that is difficult. It takes that self-management in order to say, okay, I am fine with letting this other person speak first. 
give their case, and then I can share my observations and feelings and us have a conversation. Yeah. The last piece here around conflict, and this is a difficult one, and we talked about a professor earlier who hasn't received much feedback, asking for feedback from the other person and seeking feedback to say, what did I do that escalated the situation? Truly, and when we ask for feedback, my first piece of advice, if you're not ready to ask for feedback and you're not going to use it, don't ask. Oh, that's a good point. You need to truly be ready to receive that feedback and use it. Yeah. And when seeking feedback, we need to make sure that we're making it timely. Once again, don't wait a month later and say, hey, remember that time we got in a fight? (laughs) What did I do that really pissed you off? So make sure it's timely. It's in that conversation that we're addressing this conflict and that it's actionable. Poor feedback sounds like you did a great, you did great. Or uh, I just didn't understand you. No. Okay. What did you not understand about that situation? What did I say that was misleading? I did great. Fantastic. What did I do? Well, feedback needs to be actionable and detailed in order for us to use it. Yeah. That's the last piece around conflict and relationship management. So to summarize that, putting the other person first and allowing them to be understood first, and then you can state your case. Don't avoid conflict. It gets worse if you avoid it. But don't forget, there's also that cool off period. Yes. Make sure you're not reacting in that moment where you can't control and be rational in your your way of speaking. And sometimes even in that, you might need to take a second pause and say, okay, I'm getting worked up again. Can we just take a moment? But but still don't avoid it. Don't be like, okay, well, I'm getting too worked up. Let's just drop it all together. I love that you say that. Because a lot of times people think, oh, I'm going to address conflict in one conversation. Yeah. No. Nope. No. Nope. Quite often it's multiple conversations. And, and Ash brings up a great point. If you or the other person, going back to social awareness, yeah. if you recognize those emotions heightening and them not feeling safe, it probably needs to hit pause and be readdressed at another time. Can I tell a quick story here? Yes. A couple months ago, I met up with a friend of a friend for coffee and I could tell that he was wildly uncomfortable, like just, I mean, he was exhibiting all of the body language signs. mm -hmm. He was listening to me, but not really listening. Like he would ask a question and then I could tell that he was thinking about what he was going to say next. And it would, it wasn't arrogance. It just, I could tell he was so uncomfortable and I kept trying to kind of ask questions and dig into his thoughts and his emotions and try to figure it out. And finally, I just literally made the timeout sign and I said, timeout, it seems like you are wildly uncomfortable right now. What can I do to make you feel comfortable because I'm not trying to attack you? I am not trying to hurt you. I want us to be able to reach an understanding in this conversation. And I want you to feel comfortable. So what can I do differently? And he didn't really know. He didn't really have an answer. But after that, he did start to calm down because it was it was just very clear. Okay, I'm not trying to make this awkward. I'm not, you know, and sometimes it wasn't even a conflict conversation, just was a conversation. Talking about the elephant in the room. Yeah. But just Mm -hmm. saying, Hey, you seem uncomfortable and that's not what I want, you know, or in this conflict conversation, it feels like you're getting defensive. I don't want you to feel like I'm attacking you. I just want to talk this through. And sometimes, yeah, calling that out, it can kind of stop the emotions and stop them for the other person when they're not in their rational brain and give them a moment to pause and calm down. It's giving that peek behind the curtain where you're truly laden on the table. This, this is not my intent. My right. intent is not to attack you. I, I, my, my intent is for us to have a valuable conversation. And this, this example actually leads perfectly, Ash, into the next 
key piece here of relationship management, and that's communication. Well, isn't that convenient? How convenient. Ah. Not even planned. (laughs) So communication, let's jump into that. Communication, such an important piece of managing relationships. Ash just shared a great story. You're using your social awareness to read somebody. You can recognize something's off, and you hit pause, and you address that. Mm -hmm. Whether it's they're feeling defensive or sad, and they're they're making that statement, I'm fine. And you're like, okay, time out. Clearly not. You look like you're about to start crying. (laughs) I don't think that you're fine. Communication can be so powerful. We've already talked about the study. So much of what we say, 93% of what we say is our body language, our gestures, our tone. 7% are the words that we use. So how do we communicate in the most effective way to build and manage relationships? Here's a couple of techniques. One, be natural. Be natural. Be yourself. I've heard people, and it, it blows my mind, for my my job, I've spent some time in corporate communications, and you hear people in normal life, and you're like, wow, they're a great speaker. Yeah. And then once you hit record on the video camera, <laughs> who is, who dis? <laughs> who is this? This person sounds so soft and scared. Yeah. Communication you, you want to be natural, be yourself. Yeah. And I know that's a little bit different. We're hitting record and that adds anxiety and stress to someone. Right. But in day-to-day life, don't try to be someone else. Yeah. Communicate in your own style. Be you, be natural. People can tell in your tone and your voice when you're trying to communicate as someone else and it doesn't come off as genuine. I usually tell my roommate, I've said this a lot lately and I need to tone it down actually, but uh, <laughs> I, I usually tell my roommate, be a normal human, please. <laughs> What are you doing? Define normal for us. <laughs> that would be my next question. Yeah, well, there's the other quote. I, don't, I forget what TV show it's from, but uh, it basically, you know, be be natural, be normal, mm-hmm. be yourself. And they're like, I can't be all of those things. Like, those are yes. mutually exclusive. I can't be myself <laughs> and be normal. <laughs> I can tell you one thing. I'm not normal. You already said I was crazy. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah, true statement. Okay, so we've talked about being natural. The next one, and this one, Ash and I could geek out about all day. And we can even have a different podcast on this. As you communicate and you're being intentional about how you're saying it, what you're saying, think about what is my intent in talking to this person? What message do I want to share? And then think, what impact will it have? If I say a certain statement, whether it's the words I use or the tone I'm using, it could have a totally different impact on the person receiving that message based on how I say it, what I say. If, if you've got time to think through those conversations before you have them, play those different scenarios out. And this goes back to also that social awareness, putting yourself in their shoes. What Based on their, their anchoring, their past experience, how might they receive this? Do I need to change my message so that my intent comes across in the true way I want it to and yeah. it has the impact I'm desiring for that person? This one, I mean, this also goes back greatly to, I know we talk about, diversity and inclusion at our our work mm-hmm. and intent versus impact so often sometimes it's just naive and you don't know where the other person's coming from yeah and your intent is good but they hear it so differently and the impact can be negative culture can play a, a huge part in that it's not yes. always culture but that can be a big factor absolutely so intent versus impact if you've got time to process that before a conversation that can be so helpful to help you craft your message and how you want to communicate to that person and have the impact that you're looking for. Two more pieces here around communication. One, matching your communication style in certain situations to that other person. Mm -hmm. If you come in 
oh my gosh, so hyped up on sugar and excited and you're just yelling and that other person is down and sad and, you know, quiet, that's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So as you observe and use that social awareness, being aware of the other person's emotions and matching and entering into that space in a similar tone so that you're not overwhelming or shutting them down because your, your style is coming off as so opposite. Yeah, that's great. And I do, again, I think that's some personality. Some of us naturally yes. do that, but it's also still a skill you can develop. Yes, absolutely. And this goes, I, I know I mentioned social awareness is one of my areas to improve because quite often, especially when I'm not really focusing on it, I just assume everyone's happy Yeah, because positivity is one of my top five strengths. And I could go into a conversation so chipper and not always recognize, oh my gosh, this person had a really rough day. Yeah. I'm, they might find me really annoying right now. <laughs> it's never happened. Yeah, I wish. Uh-huh. <laughs> so matching that communication style. Last one, if I were, if I were to give the biggest focus around gestures, if I were to say, if there's one gesture to mas- master, mm-hmm. it's eye contact. Eye contact with that other person you're talking to does not mean you have to stare them down for an hour. You can without look blinking. Away. Yeah, without blinking. Oh my gosh. You can look away naturally as you think and tell stories and recall Mm. information. Eye contact, however, is one of the most intimate ways to show that you care and you're connected. Mm -hmm. So out of all of those gestures in communication, there's one to master. It's that eye contact component. If if you are in, I know in our, our work atmosphere, we talk about when you're giving a presentation, making eye contact with a person in the audience for a sentence before moving on. Yes. So also when you do eye contact, it's not what we call shotgun approach. We're Mm -hmm. like, boom, 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 boom. I'm looking at every person and turning my head every, every two words. We call it windshield wipering. Oh, windshield. Right. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So one sentence per person. That's if you are in a room uh, with multiple people, not, not one-on-one necessarily. So those are some tactics around communication that can help build and enhance our relationships I've saved the best for last year. Oh, boy. And it's trust. I'm ready. Yes. Trust is one of the most important components to relationships. Uh, An author I really enjoy, and probably a lot of people have read his book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. His Mm -hmm. name's Patrick Lencioni. Patrick talks about trust being the foundation of a team. And trust, it's not just the foundation of a team. It's the foundation of a relationship. Once again, communication can help build trust. Uh, We also talked about conflict. Addressing conflict can help build trust. It can be a good thing. There's other tactics we can use to build trust in a relationship. Uh, One of those ways is being able to be vulnerable. So sharing personal stories and Mm -hmm. being vulnerable. And I can give one example around that. Uh, One of my supervisors at Alenco in 2016 I found out that I had ulcerative colitis, which for those who don't know what that is, you basically get ulcers in your intestines. Super fun. Yeah. Not really. Really pleasant. <laughs> really pleasant. And and it, it comes and comes and goes. It can give it what we call a flare. And I remember my boss and I, he had shared some other stories about some of his health struggles. And he we'd probably been on the same team for about a year. His name was Rob. He came into town and we were going to have a team retreat And I actually ended up in the ER at like 2 a.m. that day because I was having some severe pain and issues with my ulcerative colitis. And in that scenario, it was going to have me out for the rest of the week. And it was so hard for me to tell Rob 
why. I wanted to be honest. I didn't want to make up a story. Yeah. So we got on the phone. We had a conversation. I told him. And at this point, I had literally, it was probably two months that I'd figured out that I had this. Yeah. And it was getting worse. And I was figuring out medication. As I told him that story, I cried. I opened up. And he opened up and shared some stories about some health struggles that he has had. Yeah. And especially, in, he's a guy who travels a lot. And he empathized. I really felt like going back to empathy, he sat in my emotions with me and felt for me and was totally understanding, hey, you got to take the week off. You take care of yourself. And if there's any other times where this comes up, please let me know. That conversation catapulted my relationship with my supervisor, Rob, tremendously. There's something about knowing those pieces of you outside of work Mm -hmm. that really enables you to bond at a whole nother level. And, and for Rob, he sadly no longer works at Elenco, but he's someone I still admire as a manager and a leader, someone who builds trust, not only by listening and being a good listener that can empathize, but also he shared his personal examples and stories of struggles that made me feel like I wasn't a weirdo. It, everyone has something. So being vulnerable, it's hard. And being a leader, oftentimes you're the first one that needs to take that step to be vulnerable. And you don't have to be leading a team. You don't have to be a supervisor. As just a leader and an individual wanting to lead, whether it's a conversation with a friend or a coworker, be the one to share first. And it's going to enable them to feel safe to open up as well. Yeah. Another piece here around building trust is share compliments and acknowledgement. Hmm. It is so crazy how sometimes we, now this is such a simple example. We're like, oh my gosh, I love her. I love her shirt <laughs> or oh, she is such a good speaker. Go up to those people and tell them, yeah. share that, share that information. I can't count the number of times I'm trying to be better at it where I listen to someone in a meeting and I think, wow, they delivered that information so well. Mm-hmm. I am so impressed. I need to do a better job going up and sharing that with those people. Telling them, yeah. Telling them. And it builds that relationship and trust when you're sharing those observations and feelings. And especially when it's compliments and acknowledgement for their hard work or for what they've shared or what they've done. A couple other he- others here to acknowledge trust or to build trust, acknowledge the other person's feelings. Mm-hmm. That goes back to social awareness. Ash talked about that. Recognizing their feelings, talking about them, listening. Two other little things here. For trust, one, remember the little details that matter. Yeah. Remember people's names. Remember the names of their kids. Remember the name of their dog, their (laughs) weird hairy cat, whatever it is. (laughs) Remembering names, remembering little details, birthdays, that builds trust. Yeah. Especially amongst friends, but even in the workplace with teams, I love surprising people on their birthdays when they don't know that you know it's their birthday and yeah. you, they come in and their whole desk is saran wrapped. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay, my surprises <laughs> might not be as good as others. <laughs> However, you show you care yeah. and you care enough about them to know those little details. Last one here, very important. If you make a promise, keep it. Oof. If you make a promise, if you make a commitment, keep it. And you can probably think of so many examples, whether it's at work or with friends where someone's committed to something and they've said, yes, I'll get that done by Friday. Yeah. Or yes, I will be there for you at your graduation. And if they don't follow through on that, that is a ding against your trust with that person. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's painful and it's hard to come back. It's almost like two steps backwards, one step forward from there. So gosh, what do we even do with all of this information? (laughs) 
Well, we would recommend that you pick one. Pick one thing to work on. Think, okay, where am I the weakest? Or what is just something that I feel like will help me right now, even if it's not the weakest place? If you don't want to start in the weakest place, that's okay. I understand that. And just say, okay, what is one skill or strategy? And write it down and start working on it. Start working on it in your daily interactions, in your daily process. And then check in in a month and see how it's going. Yep. I know we both mentioned taking a test. If you are a data-driven person and you want a test, To help you identify that one area, that Emotional Intelligence 2.0 has a code in the back and it lets you take the test twice. So you can take it once and then you can take it again six months, a year later, however long you deem you need in order to go back and check in on how am I doing. Yeah. Well, we've talked about so many things in this Who Dis series. We're going to wrap up next week with one more episode. We're going to interview somebody. Someone who does this for a living in in the workplace. And yes, when you do it in the workplace, guess what? You get it too, family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he'll talk about the positive impact it's had around self-knowledge for work and at home in order to live our best lives. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on Living Box Free, put on by On The Rise Group. You can learn more about our services at ontherisegroup.com. Also follow us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at On The Rise Group. We hope you'll tune in next time for more helpful content.